Unwritten contains mature language, content, and themes. Please listen with care. Fire crackles. Wood splinters. Sirens blare loud and aggressive. Smoke performs an acrobatic routine in the distance, past the soccer field, swirling away from the student house on campus. Maggie bursts out of the house and runs to the sidewalk. She sees a crowd moving toward her. She stands alone. At a loss, she stares back at the house, shaking. A cry claws its way out of her throat, and she covers her mouth to stifle it. Someone shrieks her name. Maggie! She turns to see Riley running toward her, a rainbow flag flying behind him like a cape. From the rooftop of a nearby building, a man surveys the crowd of people near the flames. His posture straightens at the sight of his handiwork. On the ground... Chelsea ricochets like a pinball from student to student. The man watches her closely, studying her, remembering her face. it all it's just unwritten not putting it off just trying to figure it out if what i say comes to fruition with these words i can't play around walking on wires without a net ending up alone it hasn't happened yet Dayton Writers Movement presents Unwritten, starring Luna Madison, Jordan Lopez, David Senator, and I'm Sean Gunther. Season 2, Episode 7, The Light of Truth, written by Amanda D., directed by Chris Burnside. Also starring Samantha Russell, Adrian Miller, Hope Azell, Aaron Ryan, Liz Rosevere, Norb Wessels, Zach Duncan, and Nick Bellmeyer. Days earlier, Chelsea is in her office late again. Her pointer fingers alternately lift and drop in slow-mo on her keyboard, typing words that would earn her a pathetic Scrabble score. Her eyes droop. She slides into a short-lived sleep. Intersectional french fries. (laughs) Come in! Gerald opens the door and enters before Chelsea can wipe the drool from her chin. Hello, Miss Wu. Dean Wagner. Gerald stares out the window and smiles softly. I wonder if I'll miss that title. It's humbling almost. Closer to the students than president. Chelsea's nose crinkles like she's smelled a dank Kobe Jack. She bites down on her lip. Gerald attempts to look Chelsea in the eye. To avoid direct eye contact, 
Chelsea zeroes in on his forehead. I know our communication hasn't been what it once was. Chelsea maintains a straight face. I realize that after Miss Harper's incident, you may have been torn between your professional and personal spheres, between your career and your care for a very disturbed friend. You don't... Miss Wu, I statements. Remember our conflict management training. I don't... As I was trying to express, I respect you. You're dedicated and loyal. Chelsea's eye twitches. Despite all that has transpired, you continue to come in early, work late, triple-proof press releases for me. Your hard work has been a leading factor in my own success. Chelsea's eyes widen in horror. She bites down harder on her lip, drawing a tiny speck of blood. However, loyalty can be divided, and that's how we, you and me, fall. You heard about the off-campus training. I had nothing to do with it. No, that would be Miss Harper's doing, I assume. This isn't you versus her. I can support my friends and still do my job, as you've already pointed out. A significant turning point in adulthood is when we realize that we must leave childish things in our childhood. If you surround yourself with children, Miss Wu, how can anyone treat you like an adult? Did you have an actual criticism to deliver about my work? Because if not, I have a lot more to do. You don't realize it now, but one day you will look back on this and see how you should have worked with me instead of against me. Back at Chelsea's apartment, Ida B. Wells, the famous journalist and activist, in a neck-to-floor-length dress, picks up her autobiography from the coffee table. She lands on a page and reads intently, before glancing up at Elaine, whose bloodshot eyes stick to her laptop screen. Are you a journalist? Not exactly. Yet, you are writing, and with so many notes. It's a paper for school. What is it about? Violence and Beloved. The Toni Morrison novel. Mm. I often wrote about violence as well. Couldn't escape it. Not in my time. Mm, not in any time, maybe. Wells closes her books and pats the cover softly. Elaine stops typing and glances at Wells, who offers her the copy of Crusade for Justice, the autobiography of Ida B. Wells. Elaine, distracted from her paper, takes the book and starts reading. A friend of mine. Tom was his name. Tom Moss. Good man, a postman, and an entrepreneur. He owned this grocery store, People's Grocery, just beyond the Memphis city line. He did well for himself. The store was a, a big success, even competing with white-owned stores across the way. Elaine leafs through more pages. People's Grocery was invaded by white folk one day. Tom and his partners, they had to defend their property, their God-given right, according to the Constitution. Three whites died in the struggle. Tom and his two friends were arrested, but before they could even make it to trial, my friends were lynched by a mob. Murdered. Elaine looks at Wells with a pained expression. I can't imagine. Of course you cannot imagine. You are white. You don't have to imagine. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean... And now I feel guilty and sincerely hope my ancestors did not participate in any lynch mobs. <laughs> You misinterpret my call for empathy with one for guilt. Elaine turns back to her screen. Her hands hover over the keyboard, but no words come out of her fingers. 
She clicks from her paper to a new blog post. She types a title. A call for empathy. Elaine turns back to Wells. That's exactly what I did, too. I wrote. I wrote into the silence. I rewrote the rhetoric about lynching. Didn't I read that a mob destroyed your office? Or did I make that up? Oh, no, they did. The Memphis whites were not pleased with my words. Their power was threatened. Precisely. See, the South claims lynching is a punishment for crime. But not just any crime, of course. A black crime. And the so-called criminal is always accused by a white person. Lynching isn't a punishment for crime. Lynching is a punishment for black people brave enough to compete with white people. It is the white man's means of control. Can we even affect change without violence? During my school days, I was taking a train from Nashville to Memphis. Ticket in hand, bought and paid for with money I earned. But I was dragged like a dog off the train, forced to bite back to prove my humanity. We all need to bite back sometimes. Figuratively, yes. But I literally bit the train man. Bit right into his hand. Chelsea storms into the apartment, slamming the door shut behind her. Wells and Elaine jump. Loyal the reason what the actual fuck. I mean, I can't, cannot. Chelsea plows her way into the kitchen and yanks open the fridge door, where Dinah was curled up napping. Dinah yells and zips from the kitchen into the bedroom. Chelsea blindly reaches for a beer, cracks it open, and takes a long swig before realizing it's Elaine's ginger ale. She spits in surprise, spraying it. <laughs> ginger ale? I need to do, must do something, anything. What happened? Gerald acting not totally evil is somehow worse than him acting straight up evil. I mean, obviously his evil acts are inherently evil, but you know what I mean. Wells stares at Chelsea, bemused. You lost me. He's right, though. I could help more people. Chelsea? So here's the deal. I need less talk and more do right now. You, me, splendor. I drink, you drive. Chelsea makes manic maraca gestures with her hands. Bailamos! Elaine nervously glances back at her glowing screen. I have to finish this paper and blog post. Can it wait until the weekend? Please do me this life-saving solid. I just went with you last Friday. Chelsea swallows what she wanted to say. Fine. I'm texting Drea. At least there will be less thinking, more doing, I guess. Chelsea stomps by Elaine and Wells to her bedroom, shutting the door behind her. Elaine looks at her screen again, then walks to the door, hesitating a moment before knocking. Chelsea whips open the door, somehow already in a fresh face of makeup and smelling of musk and pine. If you really need me, I can go to Splendor. Is this a do when the clock strikes midnight or you're a pumpkin thing? Um, kind of, but I'll be okay. I can wait. Deadlines don't wait, or can't, really, by definition. Chelsea blinks back disappointment before noticing Elaine's worry. Your eyes are redder than August's face that time I flashed him. Ew. Yeah, just tired and now reliving trauma. Got it. Well, I have to finish getting ready so I don't leave Drea waiting. We both know what happens when Drea has to wait for things. Chelsea returns to her closet, and Elaine leans against the doorframe awkwardly for a second. You look great, by the way. Go work! 
Elaine returns to the comfort of her makeshift desk. You have not kept the friends you have won, but you should try from this point on. Then you can beg Lincoln for a deadline extension. I was never skilled at maintaining female friendships either. What are you talking about? She said it was fine. She understands. Wells rolls her eyes. Chelsea blurs by them to the door. See ya. Almost simultaneously as the door shuts, Chelsea bursts into tears. The next morning, in Dr. Lemon's office, Chelsea, tired with puffy eyes, slumps into a chair. So, what do you want to talk about today? Sleep. Have you been writing in your journal? As Elaine says, I'm more of an external processor. Later that day, Elaine sits in her own session with Dr. Lemon. Elaine crosses and uncrosses her legs, waiting for Lemon to ask her a question. Have you been writing in your journal? Of course! I've always written in my journal. (laughs) Silly question. You're a writer. How about, what or who inspires you to write? Earlier, Chelsea slides further down in her chair. I'm fighting against the world all the time, without a Batmobile or web shooters or superpowers, and it's exhausting. What do you fight for? The peace and justice of Gotham City. In seriousness. I have to fight just to be myself. That person who was attacked outside of the library? That could have been me. It still can be me. I have to fight for everyone else like me. Everyone who was threatened because of who they are, because of how they were born, who they love. I couldn't live with myself if I didn't fight for all that they are, and all that they can be. That's noble of you. And then I have to fight for Elaine. Later, in Elaine's session... Who inspires me? Um... Well, right now, I guess Ida B. Wells. Who is Ida B. Wells? Excuse my ignorance. She was a teacher, a journalist, an editor. Incredibly influential in the civil rights movement. And why is she your current inspiration? She was so brave and unrelenting. She fought for what she believed in. Even when the whole world was against her, she persisted. Earlier, in Chelsea's session. You can't support the world, Chelsea. I can sure as hell try. Have you shared any of this with Elaine? Shared what? You feel like you have to fight for her. Have you told her that? Not directly. Not really indirectly, either. Definitely not with words. Perhaps an indicative head tilt? Later, in Elaine's session, Elaine's focus drifts from Lemon to her bookshelf, where Wells picks up a copy of Freud's autobiography and rolls her eyes. God knows what I envied most of men was their ease to publish, not their anatomy. Elaine? Wells tosses the book over her shoulder. Elaine! What? It appears I lost you to your thoughts there. Oh. We were talking about Ida B. Wells. Anything else you wanted to add? I don't know. Um, Her words and her life just pushed me to do more. In what ways do you want to do more? I want to keep fighting. I don't want to sit docile and watch Gerald Wagner become president. I don't want to stay silent about these hate crimes either. What do you mean by keep fighting? I need to write more. Write what? Well, I've started this blog. Oh. It's self-published, so I have no red tape to worry about. I'm trying to be more colloquial, 
less academic. I'm trying to actually connect to people. Create a platform for discussions to start happening. Sounds like a good outlet. It's more than that. What have you written so far? I published a piece last night about empathy. Well, about my journey toward empathy. Which I realize is a journey I'm still on. Earlier, in Chelsea's session. It's not like empathy is one of her strong points. Elaine can't change her actions unless you tell her how you feel. She can't change her inherent personality in general, and I don't want her to. Is that so? Maybe I like that she needs me. Maybe I'm just a damn good friend. Later, in Elaine's session. So, tell me more about this journey to empathy. What did you write about? Well, I was thinking a lot about last semester. Don't worry, not in an unhealthy fixation on the past way. Just trying to work through some of the mistakes I made. And my motivations. And what did you discover? I was driven by a lot of self-interest. Do you think so? I thought your work was about justice. Sure, it was about justice in theory. But my own motivations were personal. Everyone's motivations are at least partially personal. No, but I mean... (sighs) Okay. So, remember how I felt after Lita's death? Sad? Angry? And, like, part of her death had to be my fault. It just had to be. I I should have been a better friend. One she would have come to. One she would have talked to when things got bad, but I wasn't. Elaine. Hear me out. I should have stayed home that night. You know that Lita's death was not your fault. Yes, I know that now. But I didn't then. Then I was... I was plagued by guilt, and that guilt and anger and sadness, that's what drove me. Justice was the cure. Bringing down Gerald was the only thing that was going to alleviate my guilt. Okay, I hear what you're saying. And because of that, I hurt a lot of people. I had complete tunnel vision. I wasn't attentive to the people around me. Like Chelsea? Earlier, in Chelsea's session. I know you care about Elaine, but thinking you have to be the support that holds her up, do you think that's healthy for you? Or for Elaine? Look, I'm clearly not doing so hot right now, but some of that stress is because Gerald fucking Wagner is going to be inaugurated soon, and I may have helped him get there. I need to cut this one short. I know this talking cure thing usually helps, but not today. I need a shower, something deep-fried, and not this brain jujitsu. Later, in Elaine's session. You're right. I definitely didn't treat Chelsea like a best friend should. Sarah, too. Sarah had just... had just been raped. She needed a friend and a confidant. But instead, I pushed her to publicly attest to Gerald's actions. So is this what you wrote your blog post about? Yeah. Though I didn't mention Sarah specifically, of course. This is all very astute of you, Elaine. I'm proud of your self-awareness. I'm hoping to do better this time. And I'm hoping with my blog, other people can learn from my mistakes. Guilt-driven action solves nothing. We have to be driven by empathy. That's a good point. 
It's easy to say, I think. So much harder to do. As Elaine leaves Lemon's office, her phone buzzes and she checks her texts. Sarah? At the local coffee shop, Elaine sits at a booth without windows. She rearranges two mugs, empty save for residual tea leaves, and she rearranges them again. They look identical to how they started. Sarah enters the coffee shop and approaches Elaine. Hey, Elaine. Thanks for meeting me. Thanks for... wanting to meet me. When was the last time I even saw you? Good question. Possibly that time you lost your marbles in class? I seem to recall you very loudly and publicly shaming Gregory Mulligan for being the world's greatest fuckwit. Oh, right. Eh, Greg had it coming. So, how are you? I've been doing a lot of thinking. Too much, actually. Elaine fidgets with the edge of her sleeve, pulling at a stray thread. She looks up at Wells, who's inspecting the menu board and ranting about coffee's ties with Ivory Coast slavery. Elaine finally looks at Sarah. I'm sorry about how I treated you last semester. I didn't... I got lost inside my head. I was like a robot or something, definitely lacking a human heart. I shouldn't have asked so much from you. You didn't know any better. But I should have. I should have been more sensitive, at least. It's all right. It's really not, though. And I apologize for that. Instead of then, why don't we talk about now? I found your blog. Did I write something wrong? Because I am working on- No, I really appreciate it, actually. Really? Empathy should be our driving force. I agree with that. And that's why I want to do something now. I can't let anyone else be a victim. You're a survivor, Sarah, not a victim. Depends who's throwing on the label. You get to decide who you are. No one else has that right. Yet they do have the right to question a girl who has no proof. I only have myself. I'm the only person who can attest to what happened to me. The only person other than... him. Are people believing you? Not quite. More like people are quick to claim my story as an exaggeration. Including my mother. Are you serious? I'm so sorry. That's not fair to you at all. Sarah shrugs, frowning. They're uncomfortable. That's what it comes down to. No one wants to believe the hurt humans are capable of feeling. Or causing. He's such an upstanding citizen, you know. He's friendly, extroverted, easy to get along with. The thought of him sexually assaulting someone, it's disturbing to people. I hadn't thought about it that way. But you're right. It's easier for people to brush off my words, label me a liar, label me naive or slutty instead of label him rapist. You're not naive or slutty. Or a liar. You know that, and I know that. But we share an unpopular opinion. Sarah. No, don't do that either. Pity sometimes stings even worse. Empathy? Yes. Pity? No. I'm not an injured bird. Wells gravitates toward the booth. Her interest peaked. So here's what I'm thinking. We use your blog. I share my truth. We call for others to share their truth, too. My blog is your platform, absolutely. But are you sure about this? Exposing Gerald shouldn't have to be your responsibility. It shouldn't have to be, but it is. I can't escape that. And I'm ready now, I think. I'm sorry I wasn't last semester. I just... Everywhere I go on campus, I'm worried he'll be around the corner. That'll find him standing there working his charm on some girl. I can see it happening whether I'm awake or asleep. Elaine notices the darkness under Sarah's eyes for the first time. 
Don't apologize. This doesn't have to be your battle, Sarah. It's not my battle. It's ours. It's everyone's. Wells sips from a cup of coffee. She nods at Sarah. Mmm. I like this girl. Chelsea is back in her office. The phone rings. She answers. Chelsea Wu? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was indeed Dean Gerald Wagner who made those comments. Let me transfer you. Hope it's another mad one. Chelsea dejectedly clicks through emails. Maggie walks into the room, a camera bag cradled in her arms. Hey, Miss Wu. Oh, hi, Maggie. I wasn't expecting you today. Maggie drags over one of the office chairs to face Chelsea. What's up? Maggie fiddles with her camera bag strap. Chelsea notices her nervousness. Why don't I close the door so we can have some privacy? Chelsea walks to the door, looks around to make sure Gerald is still deflecting phone calls, and closes it. She returns to her seat. That's better. Now before you tell me anything, remember that I'm a mandatory reporter. But if there's something you'd like to share but keep confidential, I can recommend one of the counselors to get you an appointment ASAP. Don't worry. Nothing has happened to me. I'm more concerned with what's been happening. You're the one who's really fighting against these hate crimes, right? I'm not a solo force, but I've been working on it. Are you any closer to finding them, the people doing this? The police are investigating the library incident and camera footage for the vandalism, but it looks like they covered their tracks, that's for sure. We've been talking, all of us from the advocacy house, and we want to do something more. Oh, awesome! What have you discussed so far? We want to make a statement, to show we won't take this sitting down, but we want it to be organized. If it's only, like, the five of us from the house and our friends, no one will bat an eye. What are you thinking? Like a rally? Yes. And you need a larger network? Bingo. Luckily, I have just the connection. Chelsea pulls out her phone to text Elaine, but she already has three texts from her, all urging Chelsea to call her. Someone opens the door without knocking. I need you to stop transferring all the angry callers to me. Oh, I didn't realize you were with a student. Maggie turns in her seat toward Gerald. He puts on his best mask of sincerity. Maggie, good to see you. Maggie nods and offers a half-smile. Gerald lingers, studying Maggie intently. Well, if there's anything else you need... No, I'll leave you to it. I apologize for the rude interruption. It's been a hectic day. Gerald pauses at the door. Let me know if you two need anything. And Miss Wu... Yep? Please pop into my office after you've finished up with Maggie here. Gerald leaves without closing the door behind him. Why don't I come by the house tomorrow after work? By then we'll already have the wheels in motion for a solidarity rally. Thank you. There aren't a lot of people we can go to who actually care. And who we can trust. I will do everything in my power to help you. Maggie pulls her camera strap over her shoulder and stands. We know. And Maggie? Yeah? I'm proud of you all. It takes a lot of courage to be who you are and to fight for who you are, too. Still at the same booth in the coffee shop, Elaine and Wells are brainstorming blog tactics. Drea walks in, dragging her feet to the cash register. The red eye, please. Elaine sees her and quickly debates whether to pretend she didn't. She shifts in the booth and becomes engrossed in the painting above her seat. Elaine, what you doing here? Elaine turns and feigns surprise at seeing Drea. 
Dreg grabs her cup of fuel and heads over to Elaine and Wells' booth. Oh, Drea, I'm just studying, thinking, thinking about studying. How are you? Life's peaches and daisies, or whatever the saying is. Do you want to sit down? On my way to rehearsal. Drea checks her phone. I only have a few minutes, but I can spare them. Drea drapes herself into the booth, and Wells scooches to the inside. So, how's August? Drea puts her forehead on the table and groans. Do you want to talk about it? Just what the doctor ordered. Couples therapy without the couple, with the ex. Drea sips her coffee and pouts. But since you asked, I can't do with August right now. I fell for him because he's a puppy dog. I hate him because he's a puppy dog. Like, the sex is good, which you get, but sometimes... Elaine's face contorts in horror. Sorry, personal boundaries. I thought you have a thing for that techie anyway. First of all, 100% platonic with the techie. Plus, I feel like the word techie is probably offensive. Drea smirks. Looks like I hit a soft spot. What? No, no. No, there are no soft spots to hit. And secondly, August and I, we we never, that, that never happened. You're shitting me. Um, no. You were on again, off again for so long. I assumed you'd been on him, off him too. Does that mean you've never done it? Like, with anyone? I'd rather not discuss this with you or anyone in public. Or private. Ever. Sheesh, Elaine, this is basic birds and bees stuff. I've read Beauvoir and Butler, okay? That's enough for me, dialing back to PG August conversation. As much as I love walling in my own issues. You don't have to tell me if you don't want to. Fine, if you really want to know, the most present argument is my name. Your name? As in another part of my identity that I have to give up to marry him. He wants you to take his last name? Yes, and if I don't... My love must not be the tell-death-do-us-part variety, according to August. I retained my name. I couldn't bear the thought of losing any more of myself. And I was still in love. That's ridiculous. How does changing your last name do anything besides reinforce marriage as possession of women? Not exactly what I was thinking. But still, I'm starting to get sick of this marriage thing, and I haven't even done the marriage thing. I need some parts of my life to be mine, aka not August. Which is more than understandable. What is wrong with men? Thank you! Finally a person with some sense. You know, Elaine, this is the first time I haven't suspected you're a cyborg from the future sent to murder us. Drea unsticks herself from the vinyl booth. Um, thanks, I think? I got a jet. Drea burns her tongue on the coffee and curses as she rushes out the door. Wells slides back to her original position. Elaine checks her phone, which is blowing up with texts from Chelsea. That night, Chelsea and Elaine prep the blog post to draw the crowd. They are sprawled across Chelsea's bed, Dinah asleep between them. Wells sits at Chelsea's desk, skimming a copy of Memphis Diaries. Elaine is typing. It's late. We need a donut. And by donut, I mean a baker's dozen maple dipped. Elaine's typing responds to Chelsea. The tea kettle screams. Chelsea and Dinah jump. Elaine continues typing. Every time that thing shrieks, I expect an unwashed demon child to emerge from the screen. 
Chelsea retrieves the tea. She returns with a steaming mug and sets it on the nightstand by Elaine. Elaine looks peculiarly at Chelsea. Elaine, why'd your finger stop the clicking? Chelsea, does it freak you out? Mm, to what are you referring? Elaine furrows her brow. Are you referring to yourself? Because yes, you are now freaking me out. No, I mean, well, you're doing all of this work. You're investigating the hate crimes, providing office hours for your students, organizing a huge rally. Of course I am. It's my job, and I love my peeps. But what about yourself? It isn't about me. Motivations are always at least a little personal. <laughs> you sound like Dr. Lemon, and I don't know how to handle it. I just mean, this has to be hard for you, too. Creeps are attacking the gay community. They're branding people's skin. It's terrifying. And you're a target. And you're carrying the weight of all the other targets on your back. If I were trying to save my own skin... Okay, very unintentional pun. <laughs> but really, if I were trying to save my own skin, I'd have quit my job a long time ago. I'd have taken the first Chinatown bus to the Big Apple of Broadway in liberalism. But I'm still here, aren't I? So, you're not scared? Oh, I'm scared. But it's not the kind of scared I can flee from. I can't abandon my students. I know what they're going through. I feel it, too. And we have to stick together. Wells nods from her perch by the desk. That's beautiful, Chelsea. We should do a spotlight on you for the blog. Chelsea sighs and rolls her eyes. Thanks for your support, my oldest, dearest friend. You have an important perspective. I think people would want to hear it. Let's just get back to the task at hand. <sighs> well, I've been thinking about what kind of angle we want to take. Chelsea looks at Elaine. Elaine is lost again to her computer screen. Enough with the suspense, Nancy Drew. Chelsea has not had her beauty sleep this week, so please spill before I start saying things worse than referring to myself in the third person. We're setting a trap. For rats? No. For Gerald. Synonym. And no. Rats are actually super amicable. Beside the point. So, this rally. I think it can be more than just a symbol. Remember the Chelsea brain-dead bit from like ten seconds ago? If we attract enough attention to this, guess who will hear about it? Barack Obama and his lovely wife with her lovely arms, I hope. The person, or persons, behind this. And maybe they'll make an appearance. But how would we find them? It's not like they're going to lurk at the rally in swastika muscle tees. No, but if we can agitate enough, they might post comments on the blog. And if they post, then we might be able to track their IP address. Since when does Elaine Harper speak fluent tech talk? We, and by we I mean Devin, can cross-reference the IP address with the time and location of the post. And boom! We compile a list of possible suspects. Is this a thing? Like, can we actually track people like that? I'll ask Devin at work tomorrow. You could just text him. Not tonight. I think he and August were supposed to hang out. You mean I'm stuck here working on a blog when I could be out with them? Isn't this more important? Yes, but I can't turn FOMO off, Elaine. wonder what crazy fun they're having right now. At August's apartment, he and Devin sit on video rockers four feet from the TV, completely engrossed in playing Wrath of Olympus 2. Dude! Dude! Over here! I found an ammo stash! Where? 
I'm over here. No, over by the fountain, where we killed the Hydra. Oh, uh, hang on, I'm coming. There's an upgraded Pegasus shield lying over here. I don't know what level yours is. Mine's a mythic with the healing aura. Ah, never mind then. Yours is way better. Hey, pass me another energy drink. August reaches absently into a cooler beside him and pulls out a can. No, I I want a blue one. Dude, you already drank all the blue. (sighs) Damn. What flavors are left? Um, red and green. I guess I'll take a red. August pulls out another can, but quickly drops it and grabs his controller. Ah, Harpies! From the east! Defensive positions! The next afternoon, in the front room of the LGBTQ Advocacy House, Riley, a plump boy in a basketball jersey, paints his nails purple on the hard, carpeted floor. Maggie hunches over a book titled... Anatomy for Artists, and sinks deeper into the overstuffed couch. Her camera bag rests slightly off-center on the coffee table. She moves the bag a smidgen to appear perfectly centered, then buries her face in the book. Looks like someone put the bat symbol in front of the searchlight. Riley doesn't move a muscle away from his paint job. I can't tell what you're trying to make fun of. Riley abruptly stops painting and looks up at Maggie. I thought you were my kindred spirit. I thought our connection was telepathic. Really have no idea what you're talking about. Maggie and Riley stare at each other, silently challenging each other to answer the door. I got it last time. Riley continues meticulously painting his nails, as if Maggie hadn't said a word. You're worse than my real brother, you know that? Maggie struggles out of the couch. As she nears the door, Riley looks up, his face suddenly serious. Just, uh... Check who it is first. Maggie freezes, her hand on the doorknob. She steals a glance at the baseball bat beside the door. She peeks around the curtain to look out the window and sees Chelsea standing at the door. Maggie sighs, smiles, and opens the door to Chelsea, who floats into the room with poster board and a deluxe set of markers. Chelsea Wu, an angel sent from above. Welcome to our... Riley extends his freshly painted hands to show off the room. He grimaces at the stained carpet and crooked floorboards. I'm deciding between humble abode and shithole. Maggie goes back to the couch, closes her anatomy textbook, and shoves it in her backpack. Finally, an acceptable excuse to stop studying. Lucky for you, I come bearing more work. We did solicit it. Though we reserve the right to buyer's remorse. Bev, a student with serious bedhead, passes through the room, wrapped in a snuggie. Hi, Bev. Bev, unfazed, continues her journey to the kitchen, Snuggy trailing behind her. Bye, Bev. Are the attacks getting to her? I'm not going to say no, because we've all been sleeping with kitchen knives on our nightstands, but that's just Bev being Bev. Uh, You should not have kitchen knives on your nightstands. That just increases the chances of you getting hurt. Well, Devin did teach us how to tear someone's ear off. That's so violent, though. Yes, much less violent to stick a knife in someone's throat. I just mean, all the violence is a little much. Can't we just dance and sing and love each other? I think you were born in the wrong decade, Riley. Yes, my purple nails and bisexual haircut would have been the toast of the town in the 60s. At least back then, no one even had to lock their doors. Maggie and Riley both look at the floor. 
Chelsea smiles and tosses her sign-making materials on the coffee table. No wallowing today. We're planning a celebration of love and understanding and peace. You can dance and sing all you want, Riley. Maggie and Riley look up and force smiles that gradually become real. Evil is no match for us, the genderqueer bat people. I'm calling final approval on names and all posters to be safe. Riley, use the damn stencils. No crooked letters. That's the spirit. Let's do this. Days later, Elaine, Chelsea, and Sarah meet at the campus courtyard, not too far from the LGBTQ advocacy house. A crowd of at least 100 swarms the area. Riley wears a rainbow flag as a cape and leads a group of people in a song. Elaine's eyes scour the crowd, looking for anything suspicious. A sign reads, We are not ashamed, but you should be. Another simply reads, Love. Maggie emerges from the crowd, clipboard in hand. She looks frazzled and waves at Chelsea. Elaine, I'm going to go do my thing over here with Maggie. Can you fend for yourself for ten minutes with all these people? Elaine continues searching the perimeter of the campus courtyard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Walking away, leaving Elaine alone with people. I'll have my phone. Sarah, come with us. She's gone to a better or maybe worse place now. That mind of hers. Elaine walks away from all the commotion to try to see everything from a wider angle. She watches as everyone links arms in a chain and starts to chant. She sees Maggie zigzagging out of the crowd and heading back toward the advocacy house. Someone touches Elaine on the shoulder. She jumps. Welcome back, Miss Harper. Gerald stands over Elaine and surveys the crowd. Elaine steps purposefully away from Gerald. Wells stands between them, arms crossed, face resolute. Quite the turnout. Good to see our students standing together at such a trying time, don't you think? It's touching. I'd prefer if he didn't use the word touching. I have a hard time believing you feel genuine sentimentality about this. You must still think I'm some kind of villain. If there's anything I can do to change that opinion, I'm all ears. Please, let me know. Some opinions can't be changed. Well, contrary to your misconceptions of me, I find this social action quite inspiring. This is just the sort of community spirit I want our school to be known for. Sure, this gathering is something to be proud of. But the reason for it isn't. The school is just as equally known for violent hate crimes as it is for peaceful protests. Ah, that is a perfect lead-in to what I'd like to touch on with you. Always with the touching. I'll have you know I've read your blog. Good. And? It seems you have quite the following. Everyone is hungry for the truth, except, of course, the people threatened by it. I am, however... A little concerned. Why? My blog is independently published. It doesn't concern you. Ah, but it does concern me when it concerns my school. A college is a business, you see. Wells scoffs. As if we do not already know this. We have to turn a profit. To turn a profit, we have to sell our product and education. Our product's success depends almost exclusively on its reputation. I will not begin at this late day by doing that that my soul abhors. Sugaring men, weak, deceitful creatures. Your little blog is not a reputable source, of course, but it is catching attention, and your narratives, while compelling, do not always shed the fondest light on this institution I care very deeply about. This rally is a nice event, but you cannot openly connect it with the singular assault that happened that would hurt the school we all care for. 
Hence, my concern. Well, so sorry to cause you concern. But also, you have no say in what I write. I'd tread very carefully if I were you, Miss Harper. While I am a fierce advocate for the First Amendment, I am also unwavering in my own beliefs. Please, tell us something. Anything. We do not already know. And I will do what must be done for the overall well-being of this school and both its current and future students. As will I. You and Miss Wu are close, I recollect. Why are you bringing Chelsea into this? Well, I would hate to discover she was somehow involved in your blog. We can't have a faculty member supporting libel about our administration. That would be toxic for our team. Chelsea isn't writing the blog. I am. And you know as well as I do that no one can do Chelsea's job but her. You forget I was once a professor. I fully believe that anyone is trainable. Miss Wu, while valuable, is not irreplaceable. One had better die fighting against injustice than die like a dog or rat in a trap. Elaine opens her mouth to tell Gerald off, but notices a line of smoke in the sky. Her eyes widen. The crowd erupts into murmurs. Someone screams. Gerald's eyes follow Elaine's gaze to the student neighborhood where the LGBTQ advocacy house is engulfed in flames. Dayton Writers Movement presents Unwritten. Executive Producers Chris Burnside, Megan Burnside. Producers Anna Adamy, Carrie Zahn. Lead Writers Anna Adamy, Chris Burnside. Story by Anna Adamy, Chris Burnside, Amanda D., Joey Ferber, Jana Gomes, Kathy Holt, Cece Hutton, Stephen Kallenberg, Grace Poppy, Tavis Taylor. Assistant Director, Megan Burnside. Sound Engineer, Dan Seavers. Theme Song by Joey Ferber, Kelsey Mills, and Ian Mortensen. For more Unwritten, visit our website at unwrittenpodcast.com. This is Jordan Lopez, voice of Chelsea Wu. I wanted to thank you all for listening and remind you to rate and review Unwritten on iTunes. Every review helps us show higher in the rankings. Be sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram and Twitter at DWM Presents. Thank you.